This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by James Pease. Bullfinch's Mythology, The Age of Fable, by Thomas Bullfinch. Chapter 5. Phaeton. Phaeton was the son of Apollo and the nymph Clymene. One day a schoolfellow laughed at the idea of his being the son of a god and Phaeton went in rage and shame, and reported it to his mother. If, he said, I am indeed of heavenly birth, give me, mother, some proof of it, and establish my claim to the honor. Clymene stretched forth her hands toward the sky, and said, I call to witness the sun which looks down upon us, that I have told you the truth. If I speak falsely, let this be the last time I behold his light. But it needs not much labor to go and inquire for yourself. The land whence the sun rises lies next to ours. Go and demand of him whether he will own you as a son. Phaeton heard with delight. He traveled to India, which lies directly in the regions of sunrise, and, full of hope and pride, approached the goal whence his parent begins his course. The palace of the sun stood reared aloft on columns, glittering with gold and precious stones, while polished ivory formed the ceilings and silver the doors. The workmanship surpassed the materials. For the walls, Vulcan had represented the earth, sea, and skies with their inhabitants. In the sea were nymphs, some sporting in the waves, some riding on the backs of fishes, while others sat upon the rocks and dried their sea-green hair. Their faces were not all alike, nor yet unalike, but such as sisters ought to be. The earth had its towns and forests and rivers and rustic divinities. Over all was carved the likeness of the glorious heaven, and on the silver doors the twelve signs of the zodiac, six on each side. Clymene's son advanced up the steep ascent and entered the halls of his disputed father. He approached the paternal presence, but stopped at a distance, for the light was more than he could bear. Phoebus, arrayed in a purple vesture, sat on a throne which glittered with diamonds. On his right hand and his left stood the day, the month, and the year, and at regular intervals the hours. Spring stood with her head crowned with flowers, and summer with garment cast aside and a garland formed of spears of ripened grain. And autumn, with his feet stained with grape juice, an icy winter, with his hair stiffened with hoar-frost. Surrounded by these attendants, the sun, with the eye that sees everything, beheld the youth dazzled with the novelty and splendor of the scene, and inquired the purpose of his errand. The youth replied, O light of the boundless world, Phoebus, my father, if you permit me to use that name, give me some proof. I beseech you, by which I may be known as yours. He ceased and his father lay aside the beams that shone all about his head, bade him approach, and embraced him, saying, My son, you deserve not to be disowned, and I confirm what your mother has told you. To put an end to your doubts, ask what you will, the gift shall be yours. I call to witness that dreadful lake which I never saw, but which we gods swear by in our most solemn engagements. Phaeton immediately asked to be permitted for one day 
to drive the chariot of the sun. The father repented of his promise. Thrice and four times he shook his radiant head in warning. I have spoken rashly, said he. This only request I would fain deny. I beg you to withdraw it. It is not a safe boon, nor one, my Phaeton, suited to your youth and strength. Your lot is mortal, and you ask what is beyond a mortal's power. In your ignorance you aspire to do that which not even the gods themselves may do. None but myself may drive the flaming car of day, not even Jupiter, whose terrible right arm hurls the thunderbolts. The first part of the day is steep, and such as the horses, when fresh in the morning, can hardly climb. The middle is high up in the heavens, whence I myself can scarcely, without alarm, look down and behold the earth and sea stretched beneath me. The last part of the road descends rapidly, and requires most careful driving. Tethys, who is waiting to receive me, often trembles for me, lest I should fall headlong. Add to all this, the heaven is all the time turning round and carrying the stars with it. I have to be perpetually on my guard, lest that movement which sweeps everything else along should hurry me also away. Suppose I should lend you the chariot, what would you do? Could you keep the course while the sphere was revolving under you? Perhaps you think that there are forests and cities, the abodes of the gods and the palaces and temples on the way. On the contrary, the road is through the midst of frightful monsters. You pass by the horns of the bull, in front of the archer and near the lion's jaws, and where the scorpion stretches its arm in one direction and the crab in another. Nor will you find it easier to guide the horses, with their breasts full of fire, that they breathe forth from their mouths and nostrils. I can scarcely govern them myself, when they are unruly and resist the reins. Beware, my son, lest I be the donor of a fatal gift. Recall your request while yet you may. Do you ask me for a proof that you were sprung from my blood? I give you a proof in my fears for you. Look at my face. I would that you could look into my breast. You would there see all a father's anxiety. Finally, he continued, look round the world and choose whatever you will of what earth or sea contains most precious. Ask it and fear no refusal. This only I pray you not to urge. It is not honor, but destruction you seek. Why do you hang round my neck and still entreat me? You shall have it if you persist. The oath is sworn and must be kept. But I beg you to choose more wisely. He ended. But the youth rejected all admonition and held to his demand. So, having resisted as long as he could, Phoebus at last led the way to where stood the lofty chariot. It was of gold, the gift of Vulcan. The axle was of gold, the pole and wheels of gold, the spokes of silver. Along the seat were rows of crystallites and diamonds which reflected all around the brightness of the sun. While the daring youth gazed in admiration, the early dawn threw open the purple doors of the east and showed the pathway strewn with roses. The stars withdrew, marshaled by the day star which last of all retired also. The father, when he saw the earth beginning to glow, and the moon preparing to retire, ordered the hours to harness up the horses. They obeyed, and led forth from the lofty stalls, 
the steeds full-fed with ambrosia, and attached the reins. Then the father bathed the faith of his son with a powerful unguent, and made him careful of enduring the brightness of the flame. He set the rays on his head, and with a foreboding sigh said, If son, you will in this at least heed my advice. Spare the whip, and hold tight the reins. They go fast enough of their own accord. The labor is to hold them in. You are not to take the straight road directly between the five circles, but to turn off to the left. Keep within the limit of the middle zone, and avoid the northern and southern alike. You will see the marks of the wheels, and they will serve to guide you. And, that the skies and the earth may each receive their due share of heat, go not too high, or you will burn the heavenly dwellings, nor too low, or you will set the earth on fire. The middle course is the safest and best. And now I leave you to your chance, which I hope will plan better for you than you have done for yourself. Night is passing out of the western gates, and we can delay no longer. Take the reins, but if at last your heart fails you, and you will benefit from my advice, stay where you are in safety, and suffer me to light and warm the earth. The agile youth sprang to the chariot, stood erect, and grasped the reins with delight, pouring out thanks to his reluctant parent. Meanwhile, the horses fill the air with their snortings and fiery breath, and stamp the ground impatient. Now the bars are let down, and the boundless plain of the universe lies open before them. They dart forward and cleave the opposing clouds, and outrun the morning breezes, which started from the same eastern goal. The steeds soon perceive that the load they drew is lighter than usual, and as a ship without ballast is tossed hither and thither on the sea, so the chariot, without its accustomed weight, was dashed about as if empty. They rush headlong and leave the traveled road. He is alarmed, and knows not how to guide them, nor, if he knew, has he the power. Then for the first time the great and little bear were scorched with heat, and would fain, if it were possible, have plunged into the water. And the serpent, which lies coiled up round the north pole, torpid and harmless, grew warm, and with warmth felt its rage revive. Boetes, they say, fled away, though encumbered with his plough, and all unused to rapid motion. When hapless Phaeton looked down upon the earth, now spreading in vast extent beneath him, he grew pale, and his knees shook with terror. In spite of the glare all around him, the sight of his eyes grew dim. He wished he had never touched his father's horses, never learned his parentage, never prevailed in his request. He is borne along like a vessel that flies before a tempest, when the pilot can do no more than betakes himself to his prayers. What shall he do? Much of the heavenly road is left behind, but more remains before. He turns his eyes from one direction to the other, now to the goal whence he began his course, now to the realms of sunset, which he is not destined to reach. He loses his self-command, and knows not what to do whether to draw tight the reins, or throw them loose. He forgets the names of the horses. He sees with terror the monstrous forms scattered over the surface of the heaven. Here the scorpion extended his two great arms, 
with his tail and crooked claws stretching over two signs of the zodiac. When the boy beheld him, reeking with poison and menacing in his fangs, his courage failed, and the reins fell from his hands. The horses, when they felt them loose on their backs, dashed headlong, and unrestrained went off into unknown regions of the sky. In among the stars, hurling the chariot over pathless places, now up in high heaven, now down almost to earth. The moon saw with astonishment her brother's chariot running beneath her own. The clouds began to smoke, and the mountain tops take fire. The fields are parched with heat, the plants wither, the trees with their leafy branches burn, the harvest is ablaze. But these are small things. Great cities perished with their walls and towers, whole nations with their people were consumed to ashes. The forest-clad mountains burned. Athos and Tauros and Tamalos and Oete, Ida, once celebrated for her fountains, but now all dry. The Muses' mountain, Helicon, and Hamus, Etna, with fires within and without, and Parnassus with his two peaks, and Rodope, forced at last to part with his snowy crown. Her cold climate was no protection to Scythia, Caucasus burned, and Ossa and Pindus, and greater than both Olympus. The Alps high in air, and the Apennines crowned with clouds. Then Phaeton beheld the world on fire, and felt the heat intolerable. The air he breathed was like the air of a furnace, and full of burning ashes, and the smoke was of pitchy darkness. He dashed forward and knew not whither. Then, it is believed, the people of Ethiopia became black by the blood being forced so suddenly to the surface, and the Libyan desert was dried up to the condition in which it remains to this day. The nymphs of the fountains, with disheveled hair, mourned their waters, nor were the rivers safe beneath their banks. Tanias smoked, and the Caicus, Xanthus, and Meander, Babylonian Euphrates and Ganges, Tagus with golden sands, and Keister were the swan's resort. Nile fled away and hid his head in the desert, and there it still remains, concealed. Where he used to discharge his waters through seven mouths into the sea, there seven dry channels alone remained. The earth cracked open, and through the chinks light broke into Tartarus, and frightened the king of shadows and his queen. The sea shrank up. Where before was water, it became a dry plain, and the mountains that lie beneath the waves lifted up their heads and became islands. The fishes sought the lowest depths, and the dolphins no longer ventured as usual to sport on the surface. Even Nereus and his wife Doris, with the Nereids, their daughters, sought the deepest caves for refuge. Thrice Neptune essayed to raise his head above the surface, and thrice was driven back by the heat. Earth, surrounded as she was by waters, yet with head and shoulders bare, screening her face with her hand, looked up to the heaven, and with a husky voice called on Jupiter. O ruler of the gods, if I have deserved this treatment, and it is your will that I perish with fire, why withhold your thunderbolts? Let me at least fall by your hand. Is this the reward of my fertility, of my obedient service? 
Is it for this that I have supplied herbage for cattle, and fruits for men, and frankincense for your altars? But if I am unworthy of regard, what has my brother Ocean done to deserve such a fate? If neither of us can excite your pity, think, I pray you, of your own heaven, and behold how both the poles are smoking which sustain your palace, which must fall if they are destroyed. Atlas faints and scarce holds up his burden. If sea and earth and heaven perish, we fall into ancient chaos. Save what yet remains to us from the devouring flame. Oh, take thought for our deliverance in this awful moment. Thus spoke earth, and overcome with heat and thirst could say no more. Then Jupiter omnipotent, calling to witness all the gods, including him who had lent the chariot, and showing them that all was lost unless speedy remedy were applied, mounted the lofty tower from whence he diffuses clouds over the earth, and hurls the forked lightnings. But at that time not a cloud was to be found to interpose for a screen to earth, nor was a shower remaining unexhausted. He thundered and brandished a lightning bolt in his right hand, launched it against the charioteer, and struck him at the same moment from his seat and from existence. Phaeton, with his hair on fire, fell headlong, like a shooting star which marks the heavens with its brightness as it falls, and Eridanus, the great river, received him and cooled his burning flame. The Italian naiads reared a tomb for him and inscribed these words upon the stone. Driver of Phoebus's chariot Phaeton, struck by Jove's thunder, rests beneath this stone. He could not rule his father's car of fire, yet was it much so nobly to aspire. End of chapter 5